0: Well hello you wonderful geeky people and welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus. This is episode 126 if you can believe it and we have a absolutely packed show for you this evening. So without any further ado I'm going to spend quite a lot of time waffling on about Doctor Who because did you see it? Okay this was recorded almost immediately after I had watched the episode so that these are my 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 fresh opinions um i've got so much more to say about this episode than i have time for in this show uh, but anyway enough waffle from me here we go So another week more Doctor Who and we left Doctor Who with the Doctor and Donna in what appeared to be a fairly dodgy situation because Donna had spilled coffee on the TARDIS console and the TARDIS had gone nuts. And what we get next is one of my favourite kind of Doctor Who Episodes. It cannot have cost a lot to make because it features exactly two actors, one robot who I think may have been CGI. I'm not sure if he was a practical effect or not. I've not watched Unleashed yet. A lot of green screen and some computer generated sets. There's not a lot of expense spent on this particular episode. What then do we have? What we have is a really cool mystery. It's, it's sort of a base under siege. What it's mostly is the Doctor and Donna running down corridors in the finest tradition of the show. And what we've also got is some really, really fine performances. That David Tennant is a good actor at this stage is not particularly news. But I think a lot of people underestimate Catherine Tate's acting chops. She's a comedian. She's a sketch artist. That's really what she's known for. And what we get here is an absolute tour de force. She's acting opposite herself at points, which is notoriously difficult to do. And you can tell which one's which. You really can. If you watch, you can. What am I talking about? Well, ah, glad you asked. So, hang on. I'm not going to do too many spoilers here, but there are going to be some spoilers that follow from the Wild Blue Yonder. So, spoiler horn coming up. After that, all bets are off. You listen at your own risk. Spoilers. Spoilers. Okay, you cannot now say I did not warn you. Spoilers for the second David Tennant 60th anniversary special of Doctor Who, the Wild Blue Yonder, from now. So, the Doctor and Donna in the TARDIS, the out-of-control TARDIS, crash into the interior of a spaceship, and they don't know where they are, and they can't just get back in the TARDIS and go home, because the TARDIS is broken, and the TARDIS needs fixing. So the Doctor does some shenanigans with the sonic screwdriver, puts the sonic screwdriver into the keyhole of the TARDIS to help the TARDIS mend or rebuild or whatever it does. It doesn't matter. The whole thing is just a MacGuffin to make the TARDIS go away so that they cannot escape. And the TARDIS does indeed run. And just think about that. The TARDIS is pretty nigh invulnerable. And yet it runs away. It has this thing called the hazardous action something, something. It pronounced, it's spelt hads. And the Doctor turned it off years ago, he tells Donna. But because the thing's rebooting, clearly it's booted back up again. And the TARDIS has done what the TARDIS is programmed to do in extreme situations, which is run away and not come back until the problem has been solved. Which, if you think about it, is a pretty doctory thing to do. But... That leaves the Doctor and Donna stranded. They know not where. So, with a moment to reassure Donna that it's not her fault, although it totally is, and to reassure her that he will get her home to her daughter and her husband and her granddad, Wilf. If you remember, they were just on their way to go and see. The Doctor and Donna venture into the interior of this spaceship and they find a robot, a robot that does not appear. To be doing very much. But every time the robot takes a step forward, then the ship also slightly reconfigures itself. They know not why, they know not how, and without the TARDIS's psychic translation services, they do not know what is being said by the onboard computer. So they do what of course you do, they make their way to the bridge, where they find very little. The Doctor figures out what the numbers 1 to 10 are in this alien language, and they note that there are some strange sounds about the place. Beyond that, it's unclear. So they go and find some stuff, and they go into a room where there are some things that need to be moved because, you know, plot. And they split up so that the Doctor can go into a different room and do different things with different things that need to be adjusted because plot. And while Donna is on her own in the original room, The doctor comes back and they talk about wanting to get home and about Donna's family and about Wilf. And the doctor notes that his arms are too long, which seems odd. And meanwhile, at the same time, which is suspicious, in the other room, the doctor is doing his thing and Donna turns up and they talk about Gallifrey and other things to do with the doctor and running away and what's happened to him and the fact that Donna can remember everything that happened in the last 15 years because of the whole Dr. Donna mind meldy thing that I'm not entirely sure they've mentioned before, but hey. And she also mentions that her arm is too long. And the doctor realises that that's strange. And he shouts for Donna, who hears him. Because, of course, it's not the doctor and Donna talking to the doctor and Donna. It's something else. Something that can't quite get the copyright. And their arms are, indeed, too long. And... Honestly, it's a special effect that at once looks really creepy and really cool and also utterly absurd. Um, It reminds me, is it the Monty Python thing with the really long arms guy who is basically like really long sleeves on a jacket with fake arms? It, It looks a bit like that at times. But the Doctor and Donna do what the Doctor and Donna always do best, which is run away. And they're running down the corridor and they're being chased by themselves. But themselves are getting it wrong. And they're massive all of a sudden. And... Then they're getting a bit misshapen and their eyes are going weird and it's all very. And then suddenly they can't be chased anymore because their doppelgangers have grown to such proportions that they're stuck and twisted together in actually a frankly disturbing way uh, in the corridor so that they can't go any further. And the doctor and Donna make a sharp, sharp exit and figure out that before the doppelgangers arrived, it got cold. And the doctor theorizes that this is because they're turning Energy into matter, and back in the back in the. and I may be getting the, the the time line slightly wrong here, but don't worry about it. Narratively, this all is this all about right. I, if I'm getting anything slightly time wise slightly wrong, it's because I always try to do these reviews after only one viewing. So um, I, I, there are a couple of things I want to go back and check if I, if I'm going to talk about this in detail, but just roll with it, okay? Big. Be- Back in the bridge, they discover that they are, in fact, at the edge of the universe. If you look out of the window at the front of the spaceship, all you see is nothing because there is nothing out there. And there's a beautiful, beautiful little explanation from the doctor about how this works, because he basically says to Donald, look, you can't understand this. You don't have the language. I'm not being rude. You just don't. Uh, you you, you Maybe in a, a thousand years, when you've developed an entirely new strand of mathematics, your people will be able to understand the concept of total nothingness. But for right now, just trust me. The universe has an edge, and this is it. I, I love that. That's such a Doctor Who explanation. Uh, it's because it's such a non-explanation. It's and Doctor Who does that all the time, and I think it does it. I think it's brilliant. There's no point explaining this. It's a MacGuffin. Don't worry about it. So they discovered they're at the end of the universe. They also discover that the last thing that happened on this ship. Which apparently contains no life forms in spite of the fact they've just been chased down a corridor. The last thing that happened on this ship was three years ago when an airlock opened and then closed. That's it, that's all they know. And then they got that strange noise. And then the doppelgangers are back, and there's more running away, and they face their doubles. And there's some really nice introspective conversations between. The real Donna and the fake Donna and the real doctor and the fake doctor as they try and figure out how to outsmart each other. And all the time, the doppelgangers are learning and becoming better. There's a really nice thing here, a a nice conversation about, well, how do we know who we are and what are we anyway? Because it turns out these doppelgangers come from nothingness and they have heard from the nothingness, the somethingness of our universe. And they're attracted to the war and the violence because that's all they see. And Donna and the Doctor try and explain to these doppelganger things that no, that's not all we are. And the doppelganger's response basically is, yeah, but it is though, isn't it? And I don't know, I quite like that. Because, yeah, what are we exactly? How do we justify ourselves? You know, what what is it to be us? Are we just creatures of rage and pain? Because that's what it looks like from the outside. And again, that's a very Doctor Who message. I really like it. And there's lots more running and lots more talk. And we discover, in fact, that the strange noise is the body of the pilot of the ship who clearly took their own life in order that these creatures would not be able to copy them anymore and you'll notice I'm using gender neutral pronouns because there was a discussion about that again and ah, there are going to be people who say that that is a bit on the nose again that the, the, the I think it's the doctor who says um he when referring to the pilot and the Donna, and Donna challenges him and he's like all right well she or they and then they refer to the pilot as she from then on and there are going to be some people who say that that's a bit on the nose and I I am not going to argue with you in that. They do appear to have flown a flag all the way up the flagpole and put some neon lights on it and said, you know, basically there's a there's a, a, a brief two minute conversation in this episode where they might as well have put a big neon sign on the screen with klaxons saying we are talking about gender. Yes, we are. But it's only two minutes. And does it does it matter that we have that conversation? Is that conversation important? Yes. Yes, it is. This Doctor Who has always been a show that has something to say about what is going on in the contemporary world. Uh, and if you don't believe me, have a look on um, I think it's called Talking Doctor Who on the iPlayer. You get to see Sylvester McCoy's audition tape a- in which he he plays the doctor opposite a character called the Iron Lady who has no sense of humour and wants to save the galaxy by destroying it. And, um, oh, my word, (laughs) that could not be a more on-the-nose attack on Margaret Thatcher. Doctor Who's always been like this, all right? Um, And do, do we need, on a kids' show, which is what Doctor Who is, it's aimed at a family audience, but basically it's a kids' show, do we need to have a discussion about whether we should check what pronouns people prefer to use when they're talking about themselves. Yes. Yes, we do. Because that's in the news. That's a thing that people are talking about. And Doctor Who, as a show, has a view on this. Yeah, that's political. That is absolutely political. It's the kind of political stance that I personally like. Your mileage may vary, um, but I like it. So we're going with it because there are going to be kids who need to know that there's more than one side to that discussion, whether they're trans or not, whether they have an issue with their pronouns or not, because th- this kind of visibility does two things. If you are somebody who is genuinely having a struggle with their gender and like, am I a boy? Am I a girl? I, I-, I know what my body is, but I don't know how I feel in it. Uh, There are kids who are having that issue with themselves, whether you like it or not, whether any of us like it or not, that is happening. And those kids, it might be useful for them to see that other people might have that discussion, too, that it's not black and white. It's not binary, to use the word. It, It is a thing that some people struggle with. Maybe most people don't, but some people do. And if you are one of those people, particularly if you are a kid, it's good to know that. But if you're not, and I think that is most people, if you are not having that discussion with yourself, if you don't need to have that discussion with yourself, if you can look at your body and think, yeah, it looks about right. Uh, that's, that is a body of that particular shape. And I feel like I belong in that particular body. Then it's also good to know that there are people who don't have that, who are looking at themselves and thinking, something's not right here. I don't feel right in this. This is not me. Is it really? What? It's good to know that just because you don't have that issue doesn't mean that nobody has that issue. So whichever direction you are coming at this from, it's good that there is representation. If all it does is spark a thought in the audience, then it's done its job. So was it a bit on the nose? Was it really obvious? Did they put a flag on it and wave it around shouting, look at us, we're discussing gender. Uh, yeah, they were absolutely doing that. And yeah, fine. They didn't make a massive thing of it. It was a brief. Well, I I've spent more time talking about it than they did, basically. So, yeah, there are going to be people that have a problem with that. I've seen some comment online. So oh, I'm never going to watch Doctor Who again. Well, fine. Doctor Who ain't going to miss you, pal. Of course, it could be that so many people take that view that nobody will ever watches Doctor Who again and the, the show dies. That That is the risk that you take when you do this kind of thing. I don't think that's going to be a problem myself, but it could be. It's a risk I'm prepared to take too. So, hey, anyway, they have that discussion. Uh, it's irrelevant, actually, to the plot. And they realise that, yes, what these creatures from nothingness are trying to do is learn enough about what, for the want of a better term, I'm going to call actual people, to copy them well enough to turn the ship around and head off into the universe that we know and commit terrible atrocities there. And Because that's what they've learned. That's what we've taught them. And they realised that the pilot gave her life to make sure that they could not do that. And they realised that the... the strange reconfiguring that the ship does is a very very slow countdown because the nothingness creatures can't process things that happen too slowly so what the pilot did before she took her own life was set the ship to self-destruct and it's been very slowly counting down from 10 to 0 over the last three years and it's getting there but now the Doctor needs to speed it up. So he speeds it up. So we get down to zero much more quickly. And there is some tension. But once the sequence, the countdown sequence, gets to a particular point, and it's inevitable that the thing going to blow up, then the hazardous action is over, and the TARDIS can come back. And lo, the TARDIS comes back and picks up the Doctor. And the Doctor goes and picks up Donna. But there's two of them, which is the right one. So he says to the two Donners, Um... One of you is fake. Um, answer me this. We, you were laughing about somebody called Mrs. Bean. Why is, this, why is that funny? And one of the donors says, well, because it's the name of a vegetable applied to a woman. And the other donor says, I don't know. It just is. And the doctor takes the one who says, I don't know. It just is. And we're all thinking, of course, that was very clever. He got the right one. And then as he goes away, the real donor is left behind going, ew. You've got the wrong one. It was me. Don't leave me. And we can see the explosion has happened and the doctor's doppelganger has already been destroyed. And the flame is whooping up the corridor towards Donna, who turns to face it and face her own mortality because Donna Noble is many things, but none of them is a coward. And she turns to face her own death. When the doctor comes back and gets her because he realises he's got the wrong one. He says because her wrist was like 0.5 millimetres too wide or something. But we all know it's because he figured it out. And actually, the real Don and Noble genuinely would say something as dumb as this, the name of a vegetable. Um, so he goes back and gets her and they escape and they land back in the alley where they left. And then we come back to a conversation that they had right at the start when Donna is pondering what if we don't make it back? What will happen then? You know, Rose will grow up and have a life and, you know, she might go back to the alley that where she saw us last maybe once a year just for old times sake but she'll move on. But, you know, she thinks about my husband, Won't right? He's going to be there every day because he he's lovely, he's nice. He's, he's, he's never... He lives you know, he's never gonna let let go ever. And the doctor says, What about Wolf? And Donna says, Well, Granddad? Well, he'll just install himself with a sleeping bag and a deck chair, and he'll just wait. And when the TARDIS doors open, there's Wolf. Played by the wonderful Bernard Cribbins about who more in a minute. And that should be a red flag immediately, because we've already established that the only person who's going to be there all the time, if it takes them a long time to get back, is going to be Wilf. And there he is. But everyone's thrilled. You know, Donna goes and hugs him and the doctor's pleased to see him. And Wilf is really delighted, genuinely delighted to see the doctor. And they hug. And Wilf says, I said, I told him, I said, eventually he'll come back and save us. And that's when the penny drops with the doctor. And he's like, wait, what now? And... Then there's a massive explosion and we see people running around the streets and we'll say, this is it. The world's gone mad. The, world, the world's ending. Cut to the Doctor Who sting and we'll be back next week for more Doctor Who. And I really have to say, like we knew that they'd filmed Bernard Cribbins. We knew that they had. Uh, that filming was done only like weeks, literally weeks before Bernard Cribbins died. And... It was so, so nice to see. I mean, you could tell he wasn't well when they filmed. I mean, he, he really looked... I, look, this is a stupid thing to say about A Man of 94, but he looked really old. But my God, it was a great performance. And yeah, just... Yeah, look, I grew up watching Bernard Cribbins, OK? I, I There's so many Bernard Cribbins performances that I remember. And that this was his last is, for me, really sad, but also genuinely a cause for celebration because he really seems to have really liked being Wilfred Mott. Bernard Cribbins had quite a lot to say about the character and what his portrayal of Wilfred Mott was and what the Doctor was to him. And I love that he got one more go. That was great. I, I, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed seeing him. And I I loved that, you know, we've brought David Tennant and Catherine Tate back for one last go. And I love that they got an episode to themselves, completely to themselves. They have such chemistry together. They have such an incredible dynamic. It really shows, actually, that Tate and Tennant have, they've done a lot of work together since Doctor Who. Um, They've done Shakespeare together. They were Beatrice and Benedict in Much Ado, which I, I I wish I'd been able to see that because then bouncing off each other the way Beatrice and Benedict do in that play, uh, it is, ah, I, I I bet that was just a whole bucket of fun. Uh, and their, their, their banter, but their clear affection for each other is just streaming off the screen. And um, again, I, I like this portrayal of platonic friendship. There is no suggestion ever of any possibility of romance between the Doctor and Donna, which for me is how it should be with the Doctor and companion. Yeah, I'm, I'm fine with people shipping Yaz and and thirteen. I'm I'm fine with you know the whole. Um, martha jones pining for the doctor thing but it does get a little bit tedious after a while and the the nature of the relationship between the doctor and donna i think is is just a joy to behold the the banter is amazing i mean for example um i can't remember who they're talking about now uh, but they're talking about uh a male character as being kind of hot and the doctor, the, the Donna, Donna says that this guy was hot, and I says, yeah, yeah, he was. Oh, am I that kind of person now? And Donna just looks at him and says, well, let's be honest, man, it wasn't that far below the surface, was it? And that was great. I loved that. Um, just, just that whole thing between them is a joy to behold, and that they got a whole episode to themselves to just banter was. Ah, it was a joy. It was just a joy. And then there were just other things. I loved the ship design. I loved the alien design, the uh, the, the captain of the ship. We see her skeleton, I guess. Um, yeah. I do have to slightly question that she decomposed in the vacuum of deep space, but that's nitpicky. And clearly, there's obviously atmosphere around the ship and that kind of thing. I, I can head cannon my way around that quite easily. The threat was interesting. The idea that this, these are intelligences of nothing that come from nothing, and what they really want is something. They want to be things. I, I loved that. And the sense there was a real, genuine sense of threat and peril from these creatures so beautifully performed by tate and tennant and also actually by the cgi people and the people who did some very clever character design there's a wonderful bit when the doctor's doppelganger is racing down the corridor to stop the robot from pushing the self-destruct button and because he needs to go faster he suddenly becomes quadrupedal and runs on all fours that's beautifully done That's a great bit of CGI. And quite a lot of the them getting the bodies wrong thing. The long arms and the droppy jaw that you get. That was beautiful CGI as well. It just really looked good. And it was creepy as all heck. Which is what a good Doctor Who monster should be. Relatively simple, but unbelievably disturbing. And they pulled that off beautifully. So... What we have then in this second episode of three is a version of Doctor Who that does not shirk taking on difficult moral questions, does not shirk from addressing contemporary issues of the day, shall we say, but also does not forget what Doctor Who's primary job is, which is to be entertaining, to be character driven, and above all else, to freak children the freak out. And you know what? I'm not nine or 11. I haven't been for some considerable time. So I don't know quite how freaked out kids would have been watching this. But it disturbed me and I'm 52. So I like to think that there were some children, if not hiding behind the sofa, at least peeking at the TV screen through their fingers because you should be scared watching Doctor Who. It's a safe scare. It's everybody's first introduction to horror, surely. And this was a really good episode for that. So, as we move into the third and final David Tennant special. So far. So good. I'm loving it. I'm absolutely loving it. Um, I am just going to give you a quick shout out to Doctor Who Unleashed, which is the behind the scenes show, uh, which is basically doing what Doctor Who Confidential used to do all those years ago. And again, a sign that Russell T. Davies is going to do things differently than Chris Chibnall did. And I don't hate the Chibnall era as much as a lot of people did. But doing things differently than Chris Chibnall strikes me at least as a really, really cracking idea. Nice one, Russell. If you are still a person who watches television in real time, when Doctor Who finishes, you can just switch straight to BBC Three to watch Doctor Who Unleashed. Or if you do what I do and watch telly over the internet, even if you're watching it live, you can just find it on the on the, on the old iPlayer, which yeah, you know, I, I find works for me. So we're going to leave Doctor Who there. I've got so much more to say. But I've been talking about Doctor Who now for 28 minutes and 23 seconds, as I say that. And that's nearly half the show. And there's an awful lot else we will need to cram in. So um, more Doctor Who next week. For now, there's a corridor that I really need to run down. And you know what really blows my mind about all of this is there's only one episode of the 14th doctor left one more go and then that's it. Then there will be no more. And I, I am genuinely conflicted here because I was not thrilled when I heard that David Tennant was coming back, but I love what they've done with it. And although I am Keen, and I would go so far as to say eager, to get into the shooty Gatwa era of the 15th Doctor. I like a bit more of this. I'm, I'm enjoying it so much. And I guess, I guess if that tells us anything, it's the old adage about always leaving the audience wanting more, is a very sensible one. So, yeah, one more to go. Obviously, we'll talk about that next week, when... We will look at the very final episode in this sort of three-episode special series kind of thing that we've got going, and I—I'm uh, nervous for it. I—I have a horrible feeling it's going to be a difficult one. This news really changes everything. Okay, so bad news. I should have used sad Spock, but I picked—I picked the wrong jingle off the sandboard. sorry bad news for people that own playstations now I, I should before people start thinking that i have a side in the console war i own precisely one games console it is a sega dreamcast yes that's how up to date i am i have no dog in the console war fight okay and it's entirely possible that this issue will in fact affect people who own different kinds of games console. And this isn't actually about gaming. This is about the removal of discovery content from the PlayStation library. Um, What's happened, and as far as I'm aware, this is in the US, but it is a cautionary tale nevertheless. If you are a PlayStation customer, you may have received a message from PlayStation which says, and I quote, Dear PlayStation customer, as of December 31st, 2023, due to our content licensing agreements with content providers, you will no longer be able to watch any of your previously purchased Discovery content, and the content will be removed from your video library. Click here, and um, it's a hyperlink, for a full list of affected titles that will no longer be supported. We sincerely thank you for your consistent continued support. Thank you, PlayStation Store. Now... The words that I want to go back to in that statement are previously purchased because this, my friends, is why I still buy Blu-rays and DVDs. I know it's 2023. I know we can stream things. I know we can buy things digitally. And I don't care because this is what happens. If you have bought a thing, as far as I am concerned, you then own that thing or that copy of that thing. Okay? And this to me should not be negotiable, but it is. If you buy something digitally and the platform that you've bought it on stops supporting that thing, you lose that thing. It goes away. It stops existing. That does not happen with physical media. If I buy a DVD of, oh, I don't know, let's say Doctor Who, since we're talking about Doctor Who a lot right now, and the company that made that DVD, loses the license to release D- Doctor Who DVDs. I get to keep the DVD that I've already bought. Nobody will come around my house and take that DVD away. That will not happen. But if I, oh, I don't know, buy a digital copy on, insert name of popular streaming service here, because it could be PlayStation, it could be Amazon Prime, it could be any any of these places that sell you digital copies of things. If I don't own, if I if, if I'm streaming that, Then that can just disappear. Will I get my money back? Oh, heck no. You will notice there is nothing in that PlayStation statement that says, you are, you know, please, you know, email so and so for a refund of all the digital media that you paid us for that we can no longer supply. Nah, none of that. So if you buy something digitally, if you buy a digital product, unless the file is on a drive you own, You don't own it. You've leased it. And I'm noticing this as a thing that I do not like. If you buy a thing now, so often, if that thing is digital, you haven't bought a thing, what you've done is leased that thing. The thing that used to be a product is now a service that will be leased to you. You are paying a rental fee for it. You don't own it, you can't own it. If you if something can be taken away from you without you having any kind of recourse whatsoever, then you don't own that thing. You really don't. And that's just a thing to bear in mind. This is not particularly uh, a thing I am reporting to have a dig at PlayStation. I don't care at all about PlayStation uh, or, or its rivals. I do care about this, though. So bear that in mind, basically. This is a cautionary news item. And I say again, if you don't own a thing, if you can't hold that thing in your hand, it is not yours. You do not own it. I don't care whether they told you you bought it or not. It can be just magically disappeared. So, please bear that in mind when you are deciding whether you are going to buy a thing digitally or physically. Oh, so what else is happening in the news? Do you know what? I'm not even touching Twitter this week. I'm just not. The whole thing is just monumentally depressing, as is a couple of comic creators kind of outing themselves as not particularly brilliant people. I... I uh I'm, I'm just not going there. It's too sad. It's too depressing. Uh, I, I'm going to continue to separate the, the artist from the art in that regard, I think. So what else is happening in the news? OK, well, in news I'm not a fan of, it's been announced that an AI-generator, Jimmy Stewart, you know, the guy from It's a Wonderful Life, is going to narrate a bedtime story for the Calm app. And I, I can't tell you how much I hate this, actually. This is... This is bad on every single level as far as I am concerned. I mean, the guy's got a great voice. And yeah, actually, were Jimmy Stewart alive, great choice for the car map. I can completely see how a bedtime story read by him would be relaxing and lull you off to sleep. But Jimmy Stewart's dead. And um, honestly, I, I sort of think... Where where there's absolutely no narrative justification for it, I kind of think we should let the dead rest. Uh, There are arguments for bringing people back using CGI in things like Star Wars, where, uh, for example, Moff Tarkin in Rogue One, although I don't like the way they did that. I I, I can see an argument for it, uh, but I can't see an argument for it here. So, yeah, not a fan. Uh, No stars. Would not recommend. It just feels wrong to me. In other AI news, um, I'm not going to go into detail on this story either, but just to note that several of the large language model AI companies have kind of suggested that it would be ridiculous to make them pay copyright fees to the people whose works they are plundering in order to generate the large language model, because if they had to do that, it wouldn't be economically viable and that wouldn't be fair. To which I say, yeah, pay your writers, because If you don't have a business model that doesn't include theft, you are not a business. You are a pirate. Uh, And so um, the the definitions there are fairly clear. So, yeah, that. Uh, And just another reason, actually, why AI is not something I approve of on in general, not in the way it's being used. Can AI be brilliant? Yes. I can think of all kinds of applications that would make the world a better place. Uh, But anything creative is not one of them. So just stop it. And while we have got a whole bunch of other news stories that I could be covering, uh, we are so pushed for time this week that we're going to leave the news there. And I may come back to some stories that actually happened this week, next week, if that makes any kind of sense. This news really changes everything. You know, one of the things I don't talk about on this show nearly enough is comics. Not Necessarily individual issues and what's out this week. I do the occasional review. Again, probably not as often as I should, given what I do for a living. But that's not what I'm talking about now. What I'm talking about now is why we do it. What it what is it about comics exactly? Because an awful lot of people don't get that. So I'm gonna talk about this over the next few weeks and I'm going to look at different elements of what it's all about because it's it's complicated <laughs> if you want a short answer as to you know what is the appeal of comics exactly uh, the, the the short answer is it's complicated the longer answer is very long indeed and so we're going to look at different aspects of what makes comics so special and we're going to start with the whole collecting thing because let's let's get this out of the way right at the start that this is the thing that a lot of people don't understand about comics geeks like me That like the need to have or in my case what must be upwards of three or four tons of paper in my attic and it's because comics it's wrong to say it's 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 the the, the physical thing necessarily that just having a comic is a wonderful thing but having a specific comic Oh, oh, that's very definitely a thing. Now, this train of thought was actually triggered by a recent purchase. And it got me thinking about why I wanted this particular comic as much as I did. So hear ye and listen to the ballad of Warlock issue nine. What matters to me about a lot of the comics that I own is... When they're from. I, the bulk of my collection I bought new, off the shelf. And so each issue of Batman or uh, Strangers in Paradise or whatever the comic is, each issue kind of is linked to a point in time and space. I know when I bought that. I know where I was when I was bored, when I bought that. I know what was going on in my life when I bought that. And to a degree, those stories, those physical issues, holding that thing in my hand, is is taking me back to that point in my life. It, 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 for me, comics work in the same way that songs do for a lot of people, for example. But then there are other reasons to buy a physical comic. Um, and that is why I am going to tell you about Warlock issue nine because this is a comic that was published in 1975 and which I have never ever owned a copy of before and yet and yet I was doing the shop's social media as one does and I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely hardly on social media myself these days but I do spend time on various social media platforms in order to promote the shop and do that kind of thing and I was on Blue Sky as it happens when I saw that comics and actually this week, rather more crucially, Doctor Who writer, Paul Cornell, friend of the show, friend of the shop, um acquaintance of mine, I don't think I claim as a friend, but acquaintance of mine, uh, was selling some duplicate issues he has from his collection. And one of those was a Pence edition of Warlock issue nine from 1975. Now, There's a whole bunch of jargon there. What's a pence edition? Well, a pence edition is an American comic with a UK price. It actually says on the cover of this comic that it costs 9p, because that's how much comics used to cost. I know, really, honestly, wow. Um, So this was printed, at least the cover was printed, for the UK market, which is instantly a weird thing. Because most comics, most American comics of this ilk uh, were not that. They were printed for the American market because the UK market didn't really exist that much in the 70s. Anyway, uh, it is the first appearance of Adam Warlock in what I consider his actual costume. Prior to this, he'd worn something else uh he currently the character still exists he currently does not wear this costume i like this costume it's stupid but i like it it's got a massive collar on the cape because it's from 1975 uh it's got a cape capes are inherently ridiculous and it's kind of a leotard kind of thing although it's difficult to know with adam because of course adam has gold skin so is he wearing a gold onesie or is he wearing a red leotard i'm not sure he's also wearing a massive gold um like a boxing championship belt type thing um and he's got a sort of weird skull clasp holding his cape together uh that's adam warlock please please don't confuse adam warlock with the character of adam warlock as seen in guardians of the galaxy volume three it's the only thing about that movie that i hate they really didn't do adam warlock well in guardians of the galaxy they just didn't um So why do I care about this comic? I mean, I did not buy this comic new off the shelf in 1975 when this came out. It came out in October 1975. So I was three. I definitely didn't buy this comic off the shelf. So why do I care about it? Well, I care about it because I've never owned it before. And yet the story inside it is really quite important to me. You see, I've mentioned this before on the show. I was not, as a child, allowed to have comics. There's a long, long explanation behind that, which I won't bore you with. Uh, And you can see, I I own a comic store now. It it didn't take. Uh, But I was always fascinated by comics. So, again, just more evidence were evidence needed that prohibition doesn't work. Anyway, what I was as a kid was a Boy Scout. And one of the things my scout troop did in order to raise money for the troop was to collect waste paper every I think it was the first Saturday morning of every month. Um, we would all go around with wheelbarrows and knock on people's doors and ask for any old newspapers and stuff that they had, because this was the early 1980s and people had newspapers. I know. Weird, right? So one Saturday morning, I was wheeling my barrow through streets, broad and narrow. Uh, crying waste paper, waste paper. Um, sorry, reference to an old song there. But I, and I knocked on the door of somebody that I knew, um, friends of the family, pillars of the community, that that kind of people. And amongst the waste paper, there was a very large bundle of old Marvel UK Star Wars Weekly comics, and I thought those are coming home with me. And they did. Now, these were UK reprints uh, in UK comic size. So the same size as 2000 AD would be now, more or less, of the American Marvel Star Wars monthly comics, uh, which had been in colour. These reprints were in black and white because British comics were in black and white back then. And they had backup stories. There were two backup stories That particularly caught my attention. One was Deathlock, about which more at a future time. The other was the power of Warlock. And I was able to piece together a sort of history of this character that I was instantly captivated by. Adam Warlock, created in a cocoon by the high evolutionary who then escaped and gained his independence and cruised space. Bearing upon his head the Soul Gem, which was, I think, the very first appearance of an Infinity Stone, because the Infinity Stones hadn't been called that then. And indeed, in the comics, they were never called that. They were called the Infinity Gems. But that's an entirely different conversation for a different time. And at this point in Warlock's history, we don't know what the Soul Gem does. Uh, It just effectively is a, a ray gun kind of weapon that takes people's souls away. And that was all it was. It, it was it was a fun plot device when it was needed, at this point in Warlock's history, because again, the Infinity Gems were not yet a thing, and he just fell in love with the character. And in the bit of the story that was originally printed in Warlock issue nine, uh, we meet Gamora. Uh, I think it's the first appearance of Gamora as a regular character. You know, the first sort of non cameo appearance of Gamora. Um, who at this point was the, the servant of Thanos. It's also a very early appearance of Thanos, the Mad Titan, although he's actually heroic in this particular story. And it, I, I have always been fascinated by this character because I only had bits of his story because I didn't have a complete run of Star Wars Weekly. I only had what I had. And they were old comics, at the time I got them, so I, it's not like I could go and find, you know, the missing ones and fill in the blanks. That that wasn't happening. But the character always stayed with me. I've always been an Adam Warlock fan, and I've always kind of wanted to have the proper comics. And so when I saw that Paul Cornell was selling a copy of Warlock issue nine, I kind of couldn't resist it. And so I bought it. It was listed on eBay. I bought it. It cost me 20 quid, which is more money than I would normally pay for a back issue. But it's it's filled in a hole in my childhood, almost. And, you know, I'm not going to say that the provenance of this issue doesn't also matter to me. This has previously been owned by a writer who I respect, a writer whose work I very much enjoy. So the fact that this is Paul Cornell's, issue of Warlock issue 9, that's also part of its appeal to me. So this individual comic is more than just the story that it tells, important though that is to me. It is actually the first time I've ever read this story in colour. I've only ever seen it in black and white before. That's a thing. But also, it is this individual copy has a story that appeals to me. And I am ridiculously happy. I'm holding it in my hand as I'm talking to you now, and I am ridiculously happy to have this thing in my possession. That, I think is is the collector bit of why comics appeal to me. It has to be a story that I'm interested in. I'm not interested in owning a comic just because it's valuable. For instance, that makes no sense to me at all. I, I'm not interested in owning a comic if I don't actually want to read the story. But times. There's also a story behind the physical object that also adds some allure. And that, I think, is the case with this. And as I sit here trying to articulate quite what this comic, this particular individual issue of a comic, this particular copy of an individual issue of a comic means to me, I find that I I am kind of coming up short. But there it is. I think perhaps part of the, the, the whole thing is that it's not rational and it's not sensible. It is what it is. And I love it for that. And honestly, I don't think there's anything else I could possibly add. So I won't. I'll just move on. Okay, so we are going to move on a little bit. Uh, we're going to not talk about comics. I was going to do some reviews, but I think I will leave those for today. Uh, what I do have is some housekeeping. I'm not going to do the Geeky Community Notice Board this week because I don't actually have anything to put on it. So, you know, I can't believe there's nothing geeky happening in the entire Harrogate area. So if you have a geeky thing that you are going to be doing, give me a shout. Info at destinationvenus.co.uk is the email address to use. And, um, you know, there's no charge for this service. No no catch no nothing just tell me it's happening i will give you a shout out uh, there's a, a, a an event board at the uh, Harrogate community radio website as well that you can use and because there is a podcast version of this show and because hcr itself is online um yeah, there are people listening to this show way way beyond harrogate which i know mystifies me too but there are actually listeners so If you have a thing that's not happening in Harrogate but is still geeky, let me know. People in Harrogate can travel, and people who are not in Harrogate might hear it. So, please, if you've got something going on, get in touch. Uh, That's the first bit. Uh, But there is sort of a geeky community notice board announcement. It's just uh, I feel a little bit weird making a thing out of it because it's about me. Uh, On HCR, as it goes, uh, you may be familiar with a show that Harrogate Community Radio does called Knowing Me, Knowing You, Aha! I can't imagine where they got that title from. But anyway, um, basically, it's, it's kind of a meta idea. The idea is that a host from HCR interviews themselves, which, I've got to admit, is a hugely fun idea, and I was very pleased when uh, Andy Backhouse who is one of the founders here at HCL got in touch to ask me if I would host it and I suppose be the guest the two things go hand in hand uh, so my show is coming out on sunday and it's it's kind of embarrassing but I have to make a little correction I'm going to put a correction on here up front and ahead of time Because um, I can't believe I did it. It was purely a slip of the tongue. It's because I did it quickly. Uh, Because, you see, whatever the faults the engineering of this show has, I do it myself. So if I spot an error at the last minute or realise that I've made a boo-boo, I can change it relatively easier. I mean, I don't always, actually. Sometimes I let my slips and snuffoos ride. Because I, because I, I'm honest like that, and sometimes they're funny and I leave them in, uh, but actual factual inaccuracies, if I catch them on this show, I always correct them before broadcast if I can. I've even once or twice gone in and changed things after the first broadcast on HCR, so that the repeats are correct, even if the original broadcast wasn't, because you know the truth matters, uh, and I realised listening back to the engineered version of my edition of Knowing Me Knowing You, uh, I have made a stupid error. I-, I know how I made it. I know why I made it. But I-, I said a thing that wasn't true. Honest mistake, but someone is bound to come back to come back and point out that I got it wrong. So I'm just going to fess up right now and give you the correct information. Uh, I'm not going to tell you why the Batman story, the killing joke, comes up in my edition of Knowing Me, Knowing You, because spoilers, but it does. And in it, I say that it's by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. I was half right. And I knew this. Yes, it's by Alan Moore. Alan Moore wrote it. Uh, Alan Moore, obviously the genius writer of such things as Watchmen and Top Ten and Promethea and From Hell and League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and so many other things That seriously, you may have seen film versions of some of those and the film versions are rubbish, but the comics aren't. But it was not illustrated by Dave Gibbons. Dave has worked with Alan Moore, most notably on Watchmen, but Dave did not draw The Killing Joke. The Killing Joke was illustrated by the great Brian Bolland, uh, a British comics artist of some renown it has to be said he's uh, he's the real deal uh, one of my favorite judge dread artists i actually prefer steve Dillon, but many people for many people um the two good judge dread artists you know the two definitive dread artists are carlos esquera and brian Bolland. and i can't really argue with them it's a matter of personal taste i just happen to really really dig steve Dillon. So oh, that was a stupid slip of the tongue, mostly because I am so used to saying by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons, because I'm usually talking about Watchmen. Anything else I say about that Batman story in the show, I completely 100% stand by, uh, and I will die on that hill. Uh, I appreciate that my views on The Killing Joke are regarded as controversial in some some sectors. Uh, certainly amongst comics fans. Uh, but I will die on the hill of my opinion of The Killing Joke. Uh, so everything else I said, I stand by it. But it is not by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. It's by Alan Moore and Brian Bolland. And yes, that's twice in the matter of just a couple of weeks that I've admitted that I'm fallible. So I don't know what you do with that. It's been a weird few weeks on, on so many levels. So I, I guess just, just roll with it. And I guess that also means uh, it's time to start wrapping things up. We are running out of time. And so that remains for me to do is tell you that geeking with Destination Venus is a Venus Rising media production. And it is recorded and engineered at great haste, I have to say, Uh, as I'm recording this outro for the show. um, It is 14 minutes past six on the 7th of December, which means this show goes live in one hour and 45 minutes so uh, i'd better get a move on so recorded and engineered here in what is a miserable harrogate today the weather's been awful it's december it's really not a nice month thank goodness for christmas lights is all i can tell you uh, if you're getting down to the christmas market this this week have a great time uh, i've not managed to get down there yet but It does seem to be very much in full swing. So do enjoy that if you are going. We will be back next week with more geeky news, views and reviews. Uh, I'm hoping we'll be able to squeeze in another wonderful woman of science. I certainly hope uh, I will be able to get some space news in because we're sadly lacking in that. And it's been a long time since we've done any proper science news as well. So hopefully all of that will be in next week's show, uh, which will be broadcast the same time on the same device. All that's missing so far is you. So we look forward to seeing you then. Until we do, be kind to yourself, be kind to absolutely everybody else, and above all else, stay geeky.